loving pranams at Bhagwan's lotus feet. Dear listeners, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series, A Try on Pilgrimage. This is Prem, your friend from Team Radio Sai. And I'm here to continue this beautiful journey that we are all taking together through the Bhagavad Gita. As you all know that this is a program in which we study each one of the verses in detail and more importantly in line with Swami's Gita Vahini. And even as we do that, we can clearly see that there are portions where Swami gives more emphasis on in the Gita Vaini and I think whenever Swami is doing that, we will try to take the opportunity to dwell into what Swami says in the Vahini as well and I think that's one of the things that I'm going to try to do today. As always, uh, we'll start with a short summary of what we did last week. We covered three verses in the fourth chapter, that is 32, 33 and 34. I'll give you a summary of 32 and 33. The summary for 34 is going to be a little more detailed because Swami speaks something more in the context or in the background of verse number 34 and we'll dwell a little more deeply into that. The 32nd verse was more or less a summary of the portion on the yagnas. Krishna says that all these yagnas, the different types that he spoke of, are spread before the mouth of Brahman. The yagna fired is often seen as the mouth of the deity for whom the yagna is being performed. So whatever is being offered into that fire is considered as entering directly into the mouth of that deity. And given that Krishna has said that all yagna is the one who receives the offering is the Supreme Brahman himself, it is quite understandable what he says here, where all types of yagnas performed lies before the mouth of the Brahman, right? That's the precise words that Krishna uses. And he concludes that shloka by saying that by being aware of this, one marches towards moksha. The verse number 33, Krishna speaks of one yagna which is greater than all the yagnas that he has spoken about. Till now, whatever yagna he spoke about, he said, be it a yagna of self-control, be it a yagna of pranayama, be it a yagna of austerities, of controlling food. All of these are equal in the eyes of Brahman is what Krishna said. But he said there is one yajna which is greater than all these yajnas which are performed with materials, all these dravya yajnas. And as we discussed, this yajna is the one where we offer our ignorance or our limited knowledge to receive supreme knowledge or jnana, where we offer our aparavidya to receive the paravidya and that is the Jnana Yajna, the Yajna of knowledge. And Krishna concluded that particular shloka by saying, all karmas culminate in this Jnana, a point that we will revisit today if we come to that shloka. Now let's come to shloka number 34. 
the last week i gave the explanation for this was based on the beautiful explanation that shirdi baba had given the devotee nana saheb chandorkar today i would like to spend a little time on what swami says in the gita vahini for this particular shloka and i would be reading out passages relevant passages from a couple of those uh, chapters for those of you who are interested in studying all of them i'm not going to read out those chapters entirely so if you want to read them by yourself those are chapters 10 and 11 in the gita vahini that's available online that is at ssbpt.info for those of you who would like to look that up the first passage that i'd like to read out is in a sense a reiteration of uh, the points that we discussed last time so let's start with that particular passage swami says in the gita vahini arjuna you may ask me how this wisdom can be acquired those anxious to get it have to go to realize souls win their grace study well their moods and manners and await the chance to ask them for help when doubts arise they should approach the realized souls calmly and courageously studying bundles of books delivering hours long discourses and wearing the ochre robe do not make a genuine wise man wisdom can be won only from and through elders who have experienced the absolute you have to serve them and win their love how can doubts be ended by the study of books they tend only to confuse the mind end of quote so this is pretty much the summary of that verse that we had gone through and one thing that swami says here and also repeats throughout this chapter and even a good part of the next chapter which is the chapter number 11 of gita vahini is how we must not think a guru can be identified easily and identified merely by external attributes but before we get to that when i read this shloka and what swami says here the doubt that arises in the mind is we've heard swami say many many times that the true guru is within swami has spoken of as the conscience being the true master then why is krishna asking arjuna to go to a guru one thing is this is not about an internal guru versus an external guru that is definitely not the point that is being discussed here it is more a comparison between learning from books versus learning from a tattvadarshi or a jnani someone who has experienced that jnana that we are talking about that's why swami further says and i quote books can best inform they cannot demonstrate by direct proof only the realized can convince by direct demonstration so they have to be sought after and served reverentially only then can this precious wisdom be won no amount of sea water can slake one's thirst no amount of study of the scriptures can solve doubt end of quote as i said swami is clearly talking about reading from a book and more than reading from a book after reading imagining that now we have become wise now that we have read that book it sometimes happens to many of us versus being guided by someone who has direct experience the other point is that the process is important 
the three step process of surrendering serving and seeking clarifications from a guru pranipatena pariprashnena sevaya right those three other beautiful words which were explained by shirdi baba thoroughly and what we went through last time so this three step process prepares the mind for receiving the jnana sami explains how it brings about humility makes one pure makes one develop dedication and devotion and thereby the mind is readied so clearly the chance of this happening when we do self study from books seems quite less isn't it so swami lays a lot of emphasis on serving the guru and as i said krishna leaves it with one shloka that is the shloka number 34 but swami dwells more into this aspect of service and i think because it is more relevant for us in this particular age and also given our relationship with swami looking up to swami as a guru swami further explains in gita vaini how that patience is very very important when we are talking about the relationship between a guru and the disciple swami says and i quote the aspirant should not grow impatient and irritate the teacher haste ruins chances of success whatever the guru says should be practiced and experienced don't try out every single item of advice that you hear or learn thus changing your spiritual discipline as fancy takes hold even from the desire to become a wise one quickly doing thus you will only end up completely ignorant why it is sometimes preferable to remain an ignorant for such people tend to end up in madness therefore one has to be very careful end of quote so clearly swami explains how listening to a guru following only those words and being patient for the experience so that the knowledge will be established is a very important process how many of us lose patience in the spiritual path so easily we claim to have faith in swami but how easily we get distracted and want to turn to you know this swami ji or that guru ji or this person is explaining very nicely and very scientifically and that technique of meditation seems to be better and so on this is not to judge anyone's technique or anyone's authenticity and i don't think i have the authority to do that and i'm not trying to do that either but the point is that one pointedness is very very important as swami says it is better to remain ignorant than to get lost in such impatient knowledge gathering because that will lead to more confusion than clarity so the idea of pranipata seva or pariprashna directed towards one guru brings about three qualities that swami would say are fundamental for a sadhaka which is purity patience and perseverance and that is why this process prepares you for that knowledge and it is not about can i not go to another swami ji can i not gather wisdom from any source because there is a verse from the rigveda which says let knowledge from all quarters come to me and most often that is quoted by many devotees by saying that a spiritual path you should be open to wisdom from all sides that is a different approach altogether you know the idea of that quote is the spiritual aspirant being open to spiritual lessons from all quarters where you look at life itself as a classroom and even as you go through life you are open to receiving 
the message from all your life experiences. So that's a different context altogether. But the one-pointedness that comes by serving one guru, being patient, persevering with what has been taught by that guru, and trying to experience from that perseverance is a different topic that is being discussed here. So Swami goes on to speak about the qualities of a guru. I will just mention a few points. Swami tells a lot of points there. And even when I mention these points, you will understand that why I'm only choosing a few points and I'm leaving the rest for you to go and read them up if you are so interested. So the points that Swami makes are one, the teacher must have not merely book knowledge, but the wisdom derived through direct experience. This is clear because if the teacher also has bookish knowledge, then there is no difference between me reading from a book and me going to a guru. So the first and foremost point that Swami makes is the teacher must have not merely book knowledge, but the wisdom derived through direct experience. The second point is the teacher must be established in the reality, that is, in the steady contemplation of Brahman, which is referred to as Brahmanishta. Again, this is a point that Krishna has been speaking about when he is differentiating jnana from mere knowledge which is gathered from books. One has to be established in that experience. It is not an experience that has come and gone. It's not a fleeting epiphany. We are referring to being established in that knowledge. Brahmanishta or Nishta is what is being referred to. So the teacher must be one who is established in that knowledge. The third point that I would like to share here is, Swami says, the Guru must study the virtues and qualities of aspirants who seek guidance. The Guru must be able to judge aspirants' hearts, their real nature. In modern pedagogy, we often talk about the student-teacher ratio being very, very important. And when we are talking about the spiritual aspirant and the Guru, the Guru's one-pointed attention to the student becomes very, very critical. As Krishna says here, the Guru is not one who sits and gives a sermon to a thousand odd people and each one gathers whatever they require. The Guru should be able to study the nature of the disciple and accordingly guide that person. And that is what makes a Guru a genuine Guru. The next point that I would like to read out is, Swami says, the Guru must not be moved or prejudiced by the disciple's wealth, the disciple's status or position. Again, a very, very important point, which points out to the quality of the Guru being absolutely selfless, absolutely not having any ulterior motives. So the Guru must not be moved by any sort of prejudice. This disciple will bring in more wealth or more status, which is important for the growth of the ashram, or this disciple has this talent, which is important. The Guru does not have any such prejudice and the more and more I read out all of these qualities, it only brings out what we have seen in Swami. You know, when we look at Swami, when we look at the ashram around, when we look at the devotees around, oftentimes we think that, you know, Swami, this person could be very useful to Swami's mission. This person could be very useful to Swami's institution. But you would find no such consideration in Swami's outlook. Swami would only look at what is required for that person what is necessary for that person to go through. So the Guru must not be moved by any kind of prejudice relating to the position of the disciple. Then Swami goes on to say, the Guru should not be one who has fear of losing disciples, who out of this fear 
makes the life of the disciples easy and starts catering to every fancy of the disciple. What an important point that is. Swami says that the Guru should not be one who has the fear of losing disciples. And this is the best expression of that selflessness of the Guru that we are speaking about. A true Guru will never have the fear of upsetting the disciple or saying that, oh, if I make this so very difficult, then the disciple will leave me and go. Just sometimes you would find Swami doing this, but not because of fear of losing the disciple, but fear of the disciple losing the opportunity, the devotee losing the opportunity. And that is again another hue of Swami's selflessness and nothing more. But this idea of the Guru being selfless and the Guru being fearless is what makes the Guru a true Guru. The final passage about the Guru that Swami speaks, which is very, very beautiful and I wanted to read out is this one. And Swami says, and I quote, If the Guru is supremely self-sacrificing, seeking to sustain truth, saturated with selflessness, seeing all people as equal, striving to secure sorrowless lives for all, leading a sweet and simple life, with a soul suffused with strength-giving thoughts, satisfied only by the chance to show others the path of good conduct and good character, then perhaps a few disciples will gather around. They will impose faults upon the Guru that sully and cast doubt upon the Guru's integrity and genuineness. But the Guru will be as serene as ever, for the Guru suffers no loss. The loss is all for the disciples who let go the great chance. End of quote. So in one part of that passage that I read out, Swami speaks about the nature of the Guru being supremely self-sacrificing and seeking only the progress of everyone around. Even when the Guru is like this, you know, that is the most important point. Even when a Guru is so perfect and so selfless and so pure in this manner, there might be a few people who will gather around and even among the few people who gather around, there might be some who find faults with the Guru. And when that happens, the Guru is not the one who stands to lose. The disciples are the ones who stand to lose. Then, of course, Swami goes on to say how we have plenty of individuals who claim to be Gurus, even those who smoke marijuana claim to be Gurus. Swami says, simply by argumentative skills, people claim to be Gurus and so on. Mentioning how we tend to get carried away by the external, by the flowery language, by the mastery of reason. Basically, I think this entire section in the Gita Vaini was not as much for Arjuna as it was for us. Because in the Bhagavad Gita, it was only Shloka number 34, where Krishna speaks two lines about how Arjuna must, or the seeker of truth, must approach a Tattvadarshi and serve him and, and ask questions and find out. The fact is, knowledge does come from within. All knowledge is within and the process of sadhana is to unravel that jnana. And that is why Shirdi Baba gives that beautiful explanation of how the jnani shows you or constantly reminds you what is agnana. A guru who is not genuine will only play with your agnana and your emotions. That is why Swami ends the chapter in Gita Vahini by saying, in this age there are plenty of such gurus. So when I read this portion and wonder, so how does one go about looking for such a perfect guru? 
yes swami has laid out all the qualities of a perfect guru but how many of us are confident of going out there and finding a guru who fits all of these descriptions well yes you and me don't have to worry too much about it we have found swami we have his words and if we need swami's presence more firmly than it is already there at this moment i am sure he will come to us in some form and he's there to personally and individually guide each one of us i'm sure the listeners and self included have experiences that vouch for this fact but for any sadhaka the idea of finding a guru seems so daunting and so immense completely almost impossible well i think the idea is to be as sincere as possible be first a sincere sadhaka the right guru will come to the sadhaka and i think many many great saints have this experience in their lives there are magically led to their guru or when they meet the guru they right away know that this is the person that is meant to take them to the jnana it has happened to adi shankara it has happened to sant kabir it has happened to many many such great personages in this land of bharat swami concludes this portion almost being vexed with the modern day guru disciple scenario and he says and i quote if the nature of the guru and disciples of today is to be considered volumes can be written but that would be using precious time for inessential discussion so we shall revert to our main topic for to dwell on the sacred guru disciple bond of krishna arjuna in the same breath with the relationship of the present day gurus and disciples would be a sacrilege they are unique incomparable this supreme pair unapproachable by any other they have to be taken as the ideal by all teachers and aspirants end of quote so swami is himself showing us the way out by saying consider krishna arjuna as the ideal and study their behavior and more importantly i think study arjuna's behavior by means of which we can become better disciples so the final passage that i would like to read before going to the shlokas that we'll be studying today is where swami speaks about the true relationship between krishna and arjuna and what should be the true relationship thereby between a disciple and a guru swami says and i quote krishna is the highest paramatma arjuna the jivatma krishna is purushottama arjuna is narottama the best of people that is why they are the ideal guru disciple others are guru disciple in name alone self willed disciples and power drunk gurus are simply wasting their lives in vain pursuits krishna is an ocean of love he watched over arjuna as one watches over the eye or the heart he taught holiness and transformed into holiness he loved and was loved beyond compare that makes the guru a genuine guru and arjuna he too is no ordinary being his surrender his tyaga is unapproachable whatever the crisis he stuck to krishna's command and krishna's word he wore comradeship with the lord as the armor that would save him from all harm as the very body in which he dwelt as something that he must foster strengthen and guard 
Although a mighty force, he was ready to efface it when necessary. This is how guru and disciple should be born together. End of quote. So I think there is much for you and me to look at and learn from that one passage that Swami speaks about. It is not wrong to reiterate here how very fortunate we all are to have found that Guru that, that Swami is speaking about, Krishna, Paramatma, the Purushottama. What is left is for us to fit into that role of Arjuna being the Narottama, the best among people. Be ready to do that Tyaga, do that surrender and saying that that constantly there will be moments in life where we have to choose between the words of the Guru and the words of the world. Constantly moments where we have to choose between the validation that comes from the Guru and the validation that comes from the world. And like Arjuna, every moment we have to make that wise choice of going with the Guru, right? I think that is what is the fundamental lesson that we can learn from this description that Swami gives. And as Swami said, Krishna watches over like one watches over the eyes or one watches over the heart. And that is his side of the promise. Swami says, I will keep up this, but you will have to keep up this. Are you ready to wear? Beautifully, Swami words it. You know, he wore the comradeship with the Lord as the armor that would save him from all harm. Can we do that? Our relationship with Swami, our comradeship with Swami has to be worn as the only armor that we require to face all battles in this world. And when we do that, we at least are approaching towards that perfect disciple status. We have found the perfect Guru in Swami. We will be approaching that perfect disciple status if we do that. So as I said, these are from chapter 10 and 11 of Gita Vahini. There is so much more Swami says and uh, beautiful chapters. I think it can be spoken of as an aside from the Bhagavad Gita but uh, for you and me, this is as much Bhagavad Gita as the rest of the shlokas are. So those of you who are interested in dwelling deep, these are not words, I think, which can be read once and say that I've read it. I think these are words that need to be read and reread and contemplated upon. So if any of you want to do that, it's chapter 10 and chapter 11 of Gita Vahini. Going forward in the next few shlokas, Krishna is going to now speak about Jnana itself. He has told about how that jnana has to be acquired. He is now going to speak about the jnana itself and it is in a way like how when we were in school. You know, when we were in school, when we are studying, when you are pursuing education, there are many distractions that come to us as we go through those adolescent and teenage years. And to be able to wade through all of those distractions, you should constantly focus on the gains that lie ahead of these distractions. Right? And that's why our parents would always tell us that, you know, if, if you study well and if you succeed, if you get good marks, this is the kind of life that lays ahead of you. They would constantly keep reminding us of what lies ahead of these distractions. Similarly, the sadhaka's path is filled with distractions. Pain, pleasure, success, fame, ridicule, ailments, disasters. Everything worldly becomes a distraction for the sadhaka. And just like how our parents would keep reminding us of the glory that lies ahead if we only study well so that we don't get carried away by these distractions, Krishna is going to speak about the glory of jnana and he's going to glorify it in such a manner that we will be able to remind ourselves of that and wade through the distractions that we would face as sadhakas. So the next few shlokas are very, very important in that sense. 
So we'll listen to shloka number 35 as always rendered beautifully and clearly by Brother Sham. We'll listen to it. I'll give you a brief meaning and then we will discuss further about it. Yanyatvana punar moham evam vyasyasi pandava yena bhutanya sheshena Knowing which, O Pandava, you will not come under delusion again in this way, and through which you will see all beings without exception in the Self and also in Me. Krishna had said, Go to the Jnanis and the Tattvadarshis, surrender to them, serve them, place your genuine doubts before them, and then they will give you Jnana. Now Krishna describes that jnana that you will receive. He says, Yatnyatva, having known which, Punaha, again, Moham or delusion, Evam na yasyasi, thus does not come again. Knowing which, delusion will not come again. This is one of the best descriptions of that ultimate jnana. Once this jnana is achieved, Moha or delusion leaves never to return again. And as I said earlier too, we all have this theoretical knowledge, right? I am not this body, everything is God or pain and pleasure is an illusion and so on. And all of this we have read, we have heard from Swami. We, to a certain extent, trust Swami's words. So these are knowledge which we do hold dearly and we do, in a way, live our lives by. It helps us sometimes especially to maintain our balance at times of disaster or failure. But the very fact that we still worry, that we still feel scared, we grieve, we feel that we lack something, is itself a sign that this knowledge is not perfect jnana or it is not jnana nishta. It is not that we have established in this jnana. So Krishna is making it clear that he is not speaking about some kind of bookish knowledge or data that is or information that is received from outside. He is speaking about the knowledge which changes one's mind fundamentally or changes the individual fundamentally. One becomes incapable of being deluded, if I could put it that way. Like the beautiful example that is often given, when the seed is roasted, it cannot germinate again. This is an Upanishadic example that is often given. If I have a seed, I can avoid sowing it or the seed is buried in the soil but there is no rain so it doesn't sprout. But when the conditions are favourable, at some point in time, the seed will sprout. But when the seed is roasted, we fundamentally change the nature of the seed and it cannot germinate any further. This jnana is like that. The feeling of I completely goes and with that, there is no scope of delusion or attachment. So there is no scope of doership and hence there is no karma itself. The next line Krishna gives another classic definition of jnana. He says, Yena, by this, Bhutani Asheshena, all beings, Drakshasi, you shall see, Atmani, in yourself. When you acquire this knowledge, you will see all beings in yourself as being a part of you. Right now, we only see a few people as part of ourselves. And that also not completely, you know, to a certain extent. And 
let's say if your child is unwell to a certain extent you suffer the the same plight of the child if your spouse is undergoing a problem you also feel that pain to a certain extent because to a certain extent we acknowledge that that person that family member or that close friend or that close companion is a part of us but when this knowledge comes the moha goes completely and what is that moha so and so belongs to me and so and so does not belong to me the very moha which is the basis of arjuna's confusion at the start of this entire bhagavad gita and the start of the war and that very moha which was the cause of the war itself because it is dhritarashtra's moha that has brought this entire war to take place right so that distinction that so and so belongs to me and so and so does not belongs to me goes away with this jnana and you see all beings as being perfectly part of yourself as i said even that moha is only attachment it is only a sense of belonging not perfectly you don't look at that person as being yourself but with this knowledge the lines of belonging completely vanish and you see everyone as part of yourself and that is why swami would say jnana or knowledge and prema or love is supposed to be synonymous because perfect wisdom and perfect love brings one to the same state of seeing oneness in all living forms but it is not seeing all in oneself but also knowing that that all is divine bhutani asheshena drakshasi atmani atomayi you see all beings in you and you also see all beings in me atomayi also in me krishna speaks as ishvara or the supreme lord in the shloka because he says you see there is unity and you realize that that one in me you see that unity as being divine as being me right and that's why krishna is speaking as ishvara in this particular statement so the guru will give you such knowledge having acquired which the delusion of moha leaves and leaves never to return and you see that all beings are one in you and are one in the divine as swami would say parulu parulu kadu paramatmude others are not others they are veritably god devotion becomes perfect when we are able to see every being as a reflection of god isn't it that's the ideal state that every devotee is trying to reach as swami would beautifully say from ekanta bhakti to ananya bhakti ekanta bhakti is being focused in loving one form of the lord with all your attention and focus ananya bhakti is now you start seeing that everything is that lord wherever you look you are only able to see that lord so the path of jnana becomes perfect similarly when we see all in our own self so both bhakti and jnana reach in that ultimate knowledge and krishna has been saying even karma culminates in this very same knowledge and that's what he's trying to tell arjuna that all these paths all these yagnas that he's been speaking about all of them take you to that same goal in the next shloka krishna continues with the description of jnana and is very interesting what he says we'll listen to it and we'll discuss about it after listening to it api che dasi pape bhya पापकृतम 
ಮೃಜಿನಂ ಸಂತರಿಷ್ಯಸಿ even if you be the worst sinner among all sinners still you will cross over all the wickedness with a raft of knowledge alone this is a very interesting shloka shloka number 36 krishna says that jnana is not the goal that one pursues after all these small battles are won in the sense that i will first conquer my anger i will first get over my greed and jealousy and then i will think about acquiring this jnana we might say i look at the shloka as that you can always pursue this jnana because apichet even if papebhyah sarvebhyah of all the sinners papakrittamha asi you are the greatest sinner sarvam all of that meaning all that jnana plavena by the raft of knowledge eva alone vrijinam sin santarishyasi you shall cross as swami would say bales and bales of cotton can be burned down in minutes with a single matchstick a room may be locked for many many decades and may have been in darkness for all those years but with one flick of the switch all the darkness vanishes just because the darkness has been there for many years it doesn't take light as many years to drive out that darkness isn't it it just takes that one moment for light to chase away the darkness jnana is like that krishna says it removes the doership itself it removes the individuality to which is anchored this entire concept of sin and merit and when this is removed all sin is uprooted another beautiful analogy that is given is that of an arrow an arrow that is coming towards a target or if i have to make it a more modern example think of a target locked missile that is you know it hits the particular target it is locked to and however much the target moves the missile chases and comes and hits that target it has been fired and it is going in search of the target and it is going to hit it however fast this target moves all sin is like that the consequences is coming to hit the doer sooner or later it might be in this birth i might change a form i might have been young i might have been old but that the consequences of the actions are coming to hit the target nevertheless and if we manage to obliterate the target itself now where will that missile hit what is the target for all of this sin and merit it is all target driven but what is the target the target is the ego that is why even if not in this lifetime in any lifetime the consequences will come to us because the ego is the same the feeling that i am this individual personality is just the same but this ego itself is sublimated by this jnana so where will the sin strike the very target has been removed the analogy here is that what krishna is giving here is that of an ocean of sin in the first line it describes the person as sinner of all sinners somebody of being a great sinner and in the next line they speak of an ocean of sin the kind of actions that i perform decide the birth that i land myself in isn't it so if i've lived a life in which i've been sinning constantly then i land myself in a birth where i am surrounded by opportunities to sin surrounded by those people who are given to such sinning too so i guess in a sense the description is a scenario like that even in such a situation 
Jnana is like a boat that can take you across such situations too. As Mirabai beautifully sings in one of her famous bhajans, she says, Satki nav kevatiya satguru bhavasagar tarvayo. Truth is the boat, the guru is the boatman who will row me across this ocean of delusion, right? Typically what Krishna has been telling here, the guru will give you the jnana, the guru will give you the boat and he will take you across this ocean of delusion. So this shloka is not to say that you can do whatever sin you want and then become a sadhaka, go after a guru, serve him and you will be free from all your sins. That is not what the shloka is speaking about, right? That is one way of contorting what the shloka stands for. The desire to be free from all sins is also a kind of a selfish desire, right? And that desire is in the same plane of existence as all the sins that have been performed. To get rid of the sins in the same plane of existence is through sincere repentance and transformation, right? That's why self-transformation is different from self-inquiry or self-discovery. If you have sinned in this plane of existence, the way to get out of that is through Paschatapa, as Swami would say, sincere repentance and transformation and good actions that comes from that transformation, which also have to be enjoyed in the same plane of existence. But jnana is a different stage of reality itself. It is like waking up from a dream. Let us say I have committed a murder in my dream and I have been sentenced to life imprisonment in the dream by the judge in the dream. That doesn't mean I can wake up only after I finish that sentence. Whether it is a sentence of a day or of a lifetime, when I wake up, it all vanishes in that very moment. And that is what Krishna is speaking about here. It might appear like mountains and mountains of sin. But when you wake up from the delusion, all of it vanishes in that very moment. So this shloka is not an encouragement to sin or to not worry about good and bad, do whatever you want, just ensure that you find a good guru and you surrender to him. It's not an endorsement of sin, but this is merely an endorsement for jnana as being way, way superior and the need to focus on it and strive for it at all times. And more importantly, this is also about self-image because we all tend to think, oh, I am a great sinner. I think most of us go through this complex when we first come to Swami because the moment you come to Swami, you listen to Swami's words. I think I've spoken about this a couple of times even as part of my Answering Booth program. A lot of people, when they first come to Swami, they hear from Swami the idealism that He expects. And then we turn to ourselves, we look at ourselves and we find ourselves lacking so much in that expectation that Swami is placing before us and we feel that, oh my God, wherever I come, this place is filled with all saints and I am the greatest sinner here. So in that sense, in our perception, we look at ourselves as the greatest sinner. In our perception, we look at ourselves as being surrounded by mounds and mounds of sin. So this is also about that self-image. You know, I came to Swami so late and so and so forth and all of this builds up that complex. We wonder if we are worthy of this jnana. The truth is, no one is unworthy of this jnana. Especially a warrior like Arjuna, this whole thing is being told to him. You know, he might wonder after killing all these people, will I have redemption? I've been a warrior, I've killed so many people, will I have redemption? Krishna is saying, these are two completely different things. But goodness has its own value. This is not to diminish the value of goodness. I think we've spoken about the role goodness, good actions 
and dharmic karma plays in karma yoga we've discussed that in detail but here krishna is speaking about the nature of jnana by saying that this is superior to all the good that you can do as someone very beautifully once described doing more good karma to suppress the bad that you have done is like trying to bury the seed deeper and deeper into soil it is going to sprout sometime or the other you know sometime there's going to be a rain the top soil is going to be washed away and this seed will germinate but jnana is that act of roasting that seed by which the seed fundamentally changes and loses the ability to germinate further so it's a completely different topic altogether or a different uh, plane of understanding that krishna is speaking about here so that is what krishna is speaking of here and also swami speaks of this in the gita vaini as generally of no one is too far away from the source to begin transformation the example that swami gives is that of ratnakara transforming into valmiki the sage he's saying that you know if someone like ratnakara can transform he was a decoit he was a murderous decoit who did not have any sympathy in his art he transformed right swami says that he transformed and he had the will to change himself as i beautifully say the power of namasmarana is such that you know here is this decoit and he was the epitome for apathy he did not care about the pain the other person underwent the emotional pain when he took away their possessions nor was he bothered about the physical pain that they had to go through when he maimed them or when he killed them such a person undergoes such transformation through namasmarana where he comes to a point where when he sees a small bird in pain he is not able to take it he breaks down right he literally has a meltdown when he sees that sight his heart becomes so tender and i think that is the perfect example of what transformation can happen in a person so in gita vaini swami gives the example of uh, ratnakara becoming valmiki so at no point one has sinned so much and this again might be very very specifically addressed to arjuna because arjuna thought that he was so far away from redemption that there is no question of him attaining jnana so krishna is specifically addressing him this to him also by saying mounds and mounds of sin or miles and miles of ocean like sin can be crossed by this boat of jnana right so that is the assurance that swami gives maybe we'll just have enough time to not study in detail but we'll just listen to shloka number 37 i'll give you a brief meaning of that maybe the next episode we will start by studying that in detail and going forward so this is shloka number 37 of chapter 4 yathai dham sisamiddhognihi bhasmasat kuru terjuna ज्ञानाग्निसर्वकर्माणी भस्मसात्कुरुते तथा जस्ट एज द फायर वेल इनफ्लेम्ड रेड्यूसेस द फ्यूल्स टू एशेस सो आल्सो द फायर ऑफ नॉलेज रेड्यूसेस ऑल एक्शंस टू एशेस सो इन अ वे हियर कृष्णा कनेक्ट्स बैक टू द कांसेप्ट ऑफ अ यज्ञ थ्रू द एनालॉजी ऑफ द फायर ही सेज ओ अर्जुना यथा जस्ट एस एदाम सी समिदह अग्नि ही एदा मीन्स फ्यूअल और द मोस्ट यूबिक्विटस फ्यूअल ऑफ दोज टाइम्स मस्ट बीन फायरवुड सो आई एम श्योर द रेफरेंसेज टू फायरवुड 
एधामसी समिद्धह अग्निही मीन्स फायर बर्न्स डाउन द फ्यूअल बस्मसात कुरुते एंड रेड्यूसेस इट टू एशेस सो ही सेज जस्ट एज फायर बर्न्स अप फ्यूअल बर्न्स अप फायरवुड टू एशेस व्हिच इज प्रिटी मच द फाइनल स्टेट और फाइनल मटेरियल स्टेट ऑफ एनीथिंग इन दैट सेंस सिमिलरली ही सेज ज्ञानाग्निही द फायर ऑफ नॉलेज सर्वकर्माणी ऑल एक्शन्स बस्मसात कुरुते रेड्यूसेस टू एशेस यथा इन द सेम मैनर सो द ज्ञानाग्नि वाज स्पोकन ऑफ ड्यूरिंग द ज्ञानयज्ञ व्हेन कृष्णा स्पीक्स ऑफ ऑल एक्शन्स बीइंग कंज्यूम्ड बाय दैट अग्नि ही सेज सर्वम कर्म अखिलम ज्ञाने परिसमाप्यते ऑल एक्शन्स इन देयर एंटायरिटी कल्मिनेट इन ज्ञाना Krishna says this jnana will burn up all actions to ashes and there are a couple of understandings about this idea of sarva karma what is sarva karma mean adi shankara in his explanation to this particular shloka he says when krishna says sarva karma there are three types of karmas which is often referred to or spoken of and i'm sure regular listeners and people of more well read will know these these do not need any introduction there are three types of karmas sanchita karma prarabdha karma and agami karma sanchita karma is like the entire bank of karma that is there that needs to be worked out right for every action that we have performed every good every bad there is this sanchita karma which is the whole backlog something like the huge bank balance that we have in our bank now if i go to the bank and i withdraw some cash from the bank for my everyday use right so i have this cash and i spend this money and once i finish this money i go back to the bank and withdraw so, so more money so this money that i withdraw for my present use is similar to prarabdha karma just before a birth is taken a certain amount of karma is drawn out of this sanchita karma to be worked out in one particular lifetime and when i finish this i go back to the atm i go back to the sanchita karma to bring some more prarabdha to take another birth so that is sanchita karma and the other is prarabdha karma the third is agami karma which is even as i am working out my prarabdha i tend to add to that more karma right even as i am going through life i am constantly doing karmas according to adi shankara according to his understanding he says that when krishna says sarva karma akhilam jnane parisamapyate or when he says in this particular shloka jnanagnihi sarva karmani basmasat kurute adi shankara feels that it is only a reference to sanchita karma and the agami karma when doership is removed all that sanchita karma is actually clueless like you know it's like that missile which has lost its target so none of that will affect a person because the ego is completely removed and when the ego is completely removed whatever actions you perform do not have consequences that is something that we have come across already many many ways in this chapter in the previous chapter that we are studying so he says that the sanchita karma loses the agami karma does not have any value the prarabdha alone is active because as there is this very beautiful analogy which is given Swami also speaks about it, just like how I give the example of a bank balance and the money that you withdraw. It is like you have some arrows in the quiver, 
the arrows in the quiver are like Sanchita Karma. You have an arrow which is about to be shot in the bow, which is Agami Karma, the actions that you're going to perform. And there is an arrow which you've already shot. And that is the Prarabdha Karma. So the Prarabdha Karma is already in action. It's already in move. There is nothing that you can do other than just undergoing it and finishing it off. So Adi Shankara says that Prarabdha is like the arrow that has already been shot. There's nothing much which can be done. So the body undergoes the Prarabdha that has to be undergone. And when the time comes, the body drops away. And this is a concept which a lot of uh, Upanishads speak about where once, when one acquires this jnana, the prarabdha works its cause out. So that is Adi Shankara's understanding of this idea of all sarvakarmani, jnanagni, basmasat, kurute. But some of the commentators, when they speak of it, they say even prarabdha gets washed out, even prarabdha gets burnt out when this jnana comes. As uh, I think in this morning's afternoon satsang we were studying when Swami said, when one becomes a Jeevan Mukta, it does not take more than 21 days or 20 days for the body to fall away. Because even Prarabdha becomes non-operational when that moment comes. Completely gets burnt out is what Swami says. So these are two different ways of looking at it, but whatever be the reason, I think the idea is all actions are burnt out because doership itself is reduced to ashes when this jnana comes. So clearly Krishna is marketing this jnana, if I could put it that way, through all of these shlokas. So dear listeners, I think we'll conclude with that. I'll join you again next week for the resumption of this pilgrimage. We have a few more shlokas in this chapter before we conclude this chapter. So do join me again next week for the continuation of the Gita series. Thank you. Jai Sairam.